Today, the scripture reading is from John chapter 8, uh, verse 48 to 59. And here it goes. The Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never. Are you greater than our father Abraham, who died? And the prophets died. You do well, who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him. I do know him and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old. And have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Thanks, Jung-Ha. I'm going to pull up our slides quick. There we go. All right. Welcome, everyone. Good morning. It's great to be here with you again. Um, as a quick reminder that as, we, as you're listening to today's sermon, if you have any questions about anything I'm saying, um, we're going to have a Q&A time after the sermon. So you can send any questions you have over Zoom chat to Colin, um, and he will lead the Q&A time after the sermon. So any questions you have, feel free to send them in and we can discuss them after the sermon. And as I've already mentioned, this Wednesday was the first day of Lent, and Lent is a season of 40 days leading up to Easter that historically in the church throughout the world has been a time where Christians have prepared to celebrate the death and resurrection of Jesus. And so the churches of Hong Kong this year have worked together, um, have come up with a Lent Bible reading plan and devotional that, that we're encouraging all Christians across Hong Kong to read through and, and study together. Um, if you'd like to join for this reading plan and devotional, we'll send a link for it at the end of the service. We're also doing Zoom calls each weekday morning to do the reading together and discuss it. Um, we started this past week and we had some great discussion. If you weren't able to join this past week, I encourage you to come join this coming week. Um, and this reading plan is taking us through the book of John and 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John between now and Easter. 
And along with this reading plan, a lot of churches in Hong Kong are doing an aligned sermon series for this season to celebrate the fact that we're united in our love for Jesus and our love for one another. And so we as a church are going to be joining in this combined series, looking at what's called the I am statements of Jesus in the book of John. And since we're doing the same series as some of these other churches in the coming weeks, we'll have some pulpit swaps as well. We'll have some guest preachers come in and share with us. I'll be sharing with their churches as they're here sharing with us at the bridge. So it's a great opportunity to be able to hear God's word from some other great teachers around our city. And throughout this series, we're going to be looking at the identity of Jesus. Specifically, we're going to dig into this question, who did Jesus believe he was? What did he say about himself? And today we're going to look at a, a foundational passage for this series, setting the stage for what's to come in the weeks between now and Easter. And in today's passage, Jesus is having a discussion with the Jews, as we just heard, and they directly ask him this question, who do you make yourself out to be? Maybe in our world, we would phrase that more like, just who do you think you are? And while the Jews are asking this question from all the wrong motives and trying to get Jesus into trouble, the question they ask him, it's a very important question for all of us to ask. It's the one we're going to be looking at in the coming weeks. Who does Jesus think he is? And we're going to start looking at this question today. We're going to look at who does Jesus think he is? Does it matter what he thinks? And is he right? And we'll see that Jesus' claim to be God requires a response. So let's pray, and then we can dig in and look at the passage together. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for speaking to us through your word, for showing us who you are and who you call us to be in response to that. And God, I pray that you would be shaping us into a people who know you, who love you, who trust you, who follow you with our whole hearts. I pray that through our time together today, you would be honored and glorified. And in Jesus' name, amen. So our first question today, who does Jesus think he is? And as you look through today's passage, it becomes very clear on several different levels that Jesus believes he is God, which is shocking for someone to think about themselves in any day and age, right? If someone walks into the room and says, I am God, that's a shocking thing for them to say. But in Jesus' day, it was not only a shocking belief, it was also a belief that would very quickly get you killed. And so when we see Jesus claiming to be God in this passage, that's a really, really big deal. And there are actually at least four different places in this passage where Jesus very clearly points to his belief that he is God. The first one we see in verse 49, where Jesus refers to God as my father, indicating that he believes he has a special, unique relationship with God. And then in verse 50, he follows that up by saying, I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. He put these two things together, and you see Jesus clearly saw himself as the uniquely loved and honored son of God the Father. Jesus believed he had a special relationship status with God that no one around him shared. And he believed that he had a special place of honor and privilege with God that wasn't available to anyone else. And you may be like, well, yeah, there, Eric, he's not actually saying he's God when he says this. But remember, Jesus was Jewish. And to the Jewish people, God's glory is sacred. 
throughout the Old Testament, God jealously guards and fights for his glory. So if you look at a passage like Isaiah chapter 48, verse 11, God says, my glory, I will not give to another. And then here in comes Jesus saying, God, that God who doesn't share his glory with anyone, he seeks to glorify me. He shares it with me. To say this is to make the claim that Jesus is God because God is jealous for his glory. He doesn't share it with anyone who isn't God. So if he shares it with Jesus, Jesus must be God. Or another Old Testament passage, Psalm 115, verse 1. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. And again, Jesus probably had this verse memorized. And he comes in and he tells them, well, God actually gives glory to me. To a Jewish person who knew their Old Testament, this would be so incredibly offensive. Jesus is claiming to be God. But that's just the first way we see him claim to be God in this passage. The second comes in verse 51, when Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Now, throughout the entire Old Testament, there's a very clear teaching that God's word gives life. We see this in the very beginning of the Bible, Genesis chapter one, what happens? God speaks and his word brings everything into existence. God's word brings life. And there's another classic passage in the Old Testament in the book of Ezekiel chapter 37 that illustrates this principle of God's word giving life so clearly. God brings the prophet Ezekiel into this valley of dead dry bones. And God says to Ezekiel, can these dry bones live? And Ezekiel's like, I have no idea. God, you're the only one who can know that. And so God commands Ezekiel to speak to the bones. And as Ezekiel speaks, the bones start moving and coming together and becoming wrapped in muscles and flesh until they are alive again. And the clear picture that's being shown to Ezekiel right here is that God's words bring life. And then we come to John chapter eight, today's passage. And what does Jesus say in verse 51? If anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Notice Jesus is promising the same life-giving or life-preserving power that God's word brings in the Old Testament. But did you notice that Jesus makes this promise to whoever keeps my word? He didn't say God's word. He said, whoever keeps my word. Jesus is claiming that his words have a power that only God's words have, which can only be possible if he is God. So once again, Jesus is claiming to be God, but he doesn't stop there. Third, in verse 55, Jesus claims to have a unique knowledge of God. He says, you have not known him. I know him. There's this common idea in the world today that we all naturally have this true knowledge of God that's hardwired into us. So no one can have a right to say someone else's idea of God is wrong. You know, the truth is subjective. As long as what you believe is true for you, that's all that really matters. But Jesus says that idea is garbage. He says God can be known objectively. God is a real person and either you know him or you don't. And, and all the people Jesus is talking to right now don't know God, but Jesus does. Jesus says there are things about God that are objectively true. And if you don't know those things, you don't really know who God is. 
And he not only says this, but he says, yes, there's, there's right and wrong things about God. There are true and false things about God. And oh, by the way, I know all the true things. I have a special, unique position for being able to know God. He claims a level of knowledge of God that no one else around him has. And that in and of itself may not be an explicit claim by Jesus that he is God. But when you see this alongside all of his other claims to be God in this passage, it clearly contributes to this greater overall argument that he is God. And and in John's eyes, Jesus having this special knowledge of God is certainly a mark that he is God. Because John's working assumption throughout the book of John is that without us having someone, specifically Jesus, to tell us and show us who God is, no one else can truly know God. If you look at the intro to the book in John chapter one, verse 18, John says, no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the father's side, that's Jesus. He has made him known. According to John in the argument of this entire book, only God can truly know God unless someone comes and shows God to us. And so within the argument of the book, Jesus saying he knows God in a way that no one else does is actually a way of him saying he is God. So that's the third place in this passage. We see Jesus claiming to be God. And then fourth, look what Jesus says about himself in verse 58. As Jesus is saying all these things about himself throughout the passage, the Jews, they hear what he's saying. They know their Old Testament. They know Jesus is making great and amazing claims about himself. And for a man who is merely a man to say these kinds of things, it's not okay. So they're becoming more and more and more angry because the things Jesus is saying are deeply offensive if he's not actually God. And as far as the Jewish people he's talking to can tell, he's not God. He's just a man like the rest of us. And so the people he's talking to, they're getting increasingly agitated because they hear and understand the claims he's making about himself, but they think they're all lies. And then Jesus makes this comment about how Abraham rejoiced to see his day. And the Jews are like, hold on, Jesus, you're like a middle-aged adult man, but Abraham lived 2000 years ago. So how is it possible for him to see you? And Jesus tells them, truly, truly, I say to you before Abraham was, I am. Now that may mean nothing to you. If you're a grammar nerd, you may be sort of grossed out because it just feels like bad grammar right here. But this isn't bad grammar. There's something far bigger happening here. If you look back at Exodus chapter three, the Israelites are slaves in Egypt. They've been slaves there for 400 years. Moses is a shepherd. He's leading sheep around the desert and he sees this bush that's on fire, but isn't burning up. So he goes over to see what's going on. And God's like, I want you to go to Egypt. Go speak to Pharaoh, tell him to let my people go. And Moses is understandably a little overwhelmed, a little freaked out, a little not excited about this new job. So he tries to ask questions and make excuses to get out of obeying and having to go. And one of his questions to God is, if I go to the Israelites and I tell them your God sent me to you, and they're like, oh yeah, what's his name? What do I tell them? And God answers, I am who I am. Tell them I am sent you to them. 
And then Jesus says to these Israelites, before Abraham was, I am. Jesus isn't having bad grammar. Jesus is intentionally referencing back to this defining moment in the nation of Israel and their relationship with God. Jesus is saying as clearly as can be, I am God. The God who spoke to Moses out of the bush. I am. That's me. He's claiming the special covenant name of God that is holy and precious to the Israelites as his own name. Jesus is saying in the clearest, most unambiguous way possible for Jewish people of his day, that he clearly believes he is God. And and if you doubt that Jesus is really making these claims about himself here, the Jewish people he was talking to clearly had no doubt about it. Look how they respond to him. They pick up stones to throw at him so they can kill him. They believe that he was committing blasphemy by claiming to be God. And in the Old Testament law, blasphemy, claiming to be God, is punishable by death. So since they've all just heard him claim to be God, they know he's broken the rule. They decide he's got to die. And so they form an angry mob to murder him. They clearly understood that Jesus was claiming things for himself that no mere human being ought to claim. I mean, think about it. You don't try to kill someone for disagreeing with you. You don't try to kill someone just for thinking they're better than you. They're trying to kill him because they believe he has broken God's law against blasphemy and therefore he deserves to die. Jesus clearly taught and believed that he was God in human flesh. And that brings us to our second question. Does it matter what Jesus thought about who he was? And the answer is yes, on a few levels. The first, some people today make this claim, you know, Jesus never actually claimed to be God. And if Jesus didn't claim he was God, if Jesus didn't believe he was God, why would we claim something for him that he didn't claim for himself? And that argument is partially true, which is why it's been so powerful in trapping so many people. I mean, they're, they're actually right. Jesus never spoke those exact words, I am God. If you're looking for a verse in the Bible where Jesus just says, I am God, you won't find it. It's not there. And the argument is also right that if Jesus didn't believe he was God, there's no reason for any of us to believe that he was God either. But that argument misses what we just saw. Jesus very, very clearly taught and believed that he was God. And he said it in a way that was absolutely unmistakable for the people he was speaking to and interacting with in his day. Even if we in the 21st century don't hear what he's saying in the exact words that we want it to be in. Jesus very clearly believed and taught that he is God in human flesh. And so because Jesus actually believed and taught that he was God, That argument that Jesus didn't believe he was God, so we shouldn't either, it doesn't hold up at all. So on that level, what Jesus thinks about himself and his identity matters. But it also matters on another, a deeper level. And that's this level. When someone makes the types of claims that Jesus makes about himself here, it requires a response. If someone walked into the room where you are right now and just said to you, I am God, you have to respond to that claim somehow. At the most fundamental level, you have two choices about how to respond to them. You can say, yes, I believe you are God, and you can decide to spend the rest of your life 
worshiping and obeying that person. Or for whatever reason, you can say, no, I don't quite believe that you are God and ignore what they say. But either way, you have to respond to them, not responding, just ignoring them and continuing to do what you were doing as if they hadn't said anything. That is a response. It's a response that says, no, no, I don't believe you. No, I I don't think you're really God. I don't think you're worthy of my worship and obedience. I, I actually find your claim to be God so ridiculous that I don't even believe it merits a response. And once you realize that the that, that types of things that Jesus is saying about himself in this passage, neutrality isn't a viable option in how to respond to Jesus. The great theologian C.S. Lewis, he put it so wonderfully. He said, a man who is merely a man and said the sorts of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level of with the man who says he is a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. You know, there are many people in our world today who try to take this neutral. There are many people in our world today who try to take this neutral or middle stance towards Jesus, like C.S. Lewis refers to here. Maybe they say things like, oh, you know, he was a good moral teacher, but God, come on. No, he's not God. They try to show respect for him as a, a teacher and a good person without crossing the line to where Jesus has any type of real authority or say in their lives. There are other people who are happy to accept Jesus as a way to God that works for some people, but they stop short of recognizing Jesus as the way to God that applies for all people. They think, you know, we're each free to find our own way to God. If your way is Jesus, that's great for you, but don't try to hold other people to your standard. But if what Jesus says about himself in this passage is true, that option is garbage. Like if Jesus is, I am the God who made the world and saves his people, he is the only God we should worship. If the God who rules the universe shares his glory with Jesus in a way that he won't share it with anyone but himself, then Jesus is the only God we should glorify. If Jesus has special access to and knowledge of God that everyone else on the planet lacks, then Jesus and the sources he points us to for knowing God should be the only ones we use in figuring out what God is like. If Jesus' words have the ability to save us from death, then Jesus is the only God we should listen to and obey. And if these things are true about, if these things aren't true about Jesus, then we shouldn't believe them. We shouldn't listen to what Jesus says. We shouldn't be okay with other people believing them and listening to what Jesus says because they're all lies. Once we truly understand who Jesus thinks he is, we have to respond to him. And these middle approaches, these neutral approaches won't do any longer. We have to either say yes to his claims and give him our worship and obedience, or we have to say no to his claims and move on with our lives. But neutrality isn't an option. It's simply a veiled no. And this response needs to be an urgent priority for us. I know right now Hong Kong is going through a tough time. There are a lot of people in the city who are just like, 
things are so crazy in Hong Kong these days. It's hard enough just to get out of bed and get through each day. Like, why should I waste my precious energy and time and attention focusing on questions like this? I'll have time later to deal with that. And if that's what you're feeling right now, like I get it, I was there and it's a hard season. But actually when we see what Jesus is really saying here, we'll see that thinking through the claims of Jesus is actually the most important thing we can spend our energy and attention on even right now. Like first, COVID is a life or death issue and the question of Jesus' identity prepares us for death. Jesus says, if we keep his words, we will never taste death in verse 52. Now he's obviously not talking about physical death because everyone still experiences that, but he sees this other deeper level of death that comes after physical death for those who don't trust in him. And Jesus says, for those who trust in him, we will never experience that second death. Instead, we'll one day be raised from the dead to spend an eternity of blessing with him. And here's what this means. If God forbid you catch COVID severely and you don't make it, are you ready to die? Or maybe it's not COVID. Maybe it's another medical emergency that comes up in the coming weeks and months that you're not able to get treatment for because the hospital system is so overwhelmed. If that happens, are you ready to die? And the answer to that question hinges on who Jesus is. The identity of Jesus, whether he really is who he says he is, determines whether you are ready to die. If he is who he says he is, those who trust in him will never taste death. That's going to give us so much security and hope and confidence during this season. And therefore, there's no higher priority, even during COVID, than answering this question, who is Jesus? The second reason this is a really urgent question to answer during this time is because our response to this question shaped our response to COVID. If Jesus is truly God, if he really has power that even death can't overcome, if he's really in control, even when times are crazy, he can give us peace in the midst of the chaos. I'm not saying that's easy. Like I've been realizing ever since our plane left Hong Kong, the layers of anxiety that have just been building up in my heart over the past several weeks, despite my faith in Jesus. Fears about our family being split up and being given huge fines for not following the rules to the letter and all these things that just feel completely out of my control. And I just felt stress and anxiety building up. But if Jesus is who he says he is, we can trust him to be good and have a good plan for us, even in this tough time. But if Jesus isn't who he says he is, then this actually is a time to dread all the terrible things that can happen and to mourn the fact that we're out of control. If Jesus isn't who he says he is, then anxiety and stress and escapist behaviors like alcoholism and porn are the right response to the situation. Because if Jesus isn't who he says he is, then everything really is out of control. There's no one to look after us or take care of us. And then we die. If Jesus isn't God, the reality of being human is incredibly, incredibly bleak. Knowing the answer to whether Jesus really is who he says he is, it equips us to live well, even in the hardest times, maybe especially in the hardest of times. And so that brings us to our third question today. 
Is he right? When Jesus tells the Jewish crowds in today's passage that he is God, is he right? And how do we even go about finding an answer to that question? I realize it's a huge question. Bookshelves can be filled with the books that have been written to respond to and discuss this question. And our remaining time today is barely enough to scratch the surface. Uh, if this, let me just say right now, if this is something you want to research more and you're curious where to look, get in touch with me, send me a message. I'm happy to point you to some good research, uh, resources so you can study this more on your own. But let's just look briefly at a couple things to consider as we try to answer this question. One important step in answering this question, is he right about his identity, is just looking at Jesus' life. Did the way Jesus lived line up with the types of things we'd expect from someone who was God in human flesh? And that's actually what we're going to be looking at a lot in the coming weeks of this series. Uh, we'll look at some of Jesus' teachings and the things he said about himself and examine whether he can really live up to the claims that he made about himself. So we're not going to dig too much into that one today. But the other big, big, huge thing to look at is how did God respond to Jesus? As I already mentioned, the Old Testament law said that, that if a man made the types of claims about himself that Jesus makes here, he deserves to die. That law was given to Israel by God. It's God's law. And eventually Jesus kept talking about himself in this way long enough that the Jewish people just got tired of it. They decided he needed to die for violating this law and they kill him. But what happens after he dies? Well, the Bible tells us God raises him from the dead. And I realize you, you may find it hard to believe that someone could actually rise from the dead. And again, if you want to study more, whether the resurrection is actually possible, there are some great resources out there I'd be happy to connect you with. But generally, there are a few points that more or less all scholars agree on that need to be considered and explained if you don't believe Jesus rose from the dead. Like first, it's, it's general consensus. The tomb was empty. If the tomb wasn't empty, then as soon as stories started to spread about Jesus being alive again, all the authorities needed to do, dig up the body, pull it out, show everyone, look, he's still dead. We, here's his body, if you don't believe us. And all the stories about him being alive again would have stopped very quickly. The fact that they didn't do that shows that the tomb was genuinely empty. And there are various different theories about how the tomb could have become empty without Jesus rising from the dead and you know people stealing his body or whatever. But all of those theories are actually full of holes themselves and actually make less sense of the available evidence than the resurrection does. And no, an empty tomb by itself doesn't necessarily mean that someone rose from the dead, which is why the second piece of evidence is so important. And that is the post-resurrection appearances of Jesus. It's clear, again, many, many people believe they saw Jesus alive after he was killed. Now, they could have been wrong. But if you believe they were wrong, you have to explain how Jesus' closest friends, his brothers, and his own mother all were tricked into believing that some imposter was actually Jesus, and how they were so deeply convinced of that that they were willing to die for their belief that he was alive again. And if you're like, oh, well, it could have been a conspiracy among his close friends and family, the appearances weren't limited to just that group. They were widespread. In 1 Corinthians 15, we're told that at one time, Jesus appeared to more than 500 people at once after his resurrection. 
And Paul essentially says there, if you don't believe me about Jesus being raised from the dead, just go talk to one of the eyewitnesses because most of them are still alive. If you were on a jury in court and one of the sides in the case brought 500 eyewitnesses that all gave testimony that an event happened, you'd have to consider whether what they were saying has some validity, no matter how ridiculous it might seem at first glance. And so there's the empty tomb, there's the post-resurrection appearances, and then there are other things that are, again, hard to explain if the resurrection isn't true. How did Jesus' disciples, this group that was so scared that they all ran away the night he was arrested, suddenly transform almost overnight into a fearless group of men who turned the world upside down, who stood up to the authorities, unless they saw Jesus conquer death and that set them free of their own fear of death. Why did Jesus' Jewish followers set aside thousands of years of Jewish tradition and Jewish law and start worshiping on Sundays instead of Saturdays unless Jesus actually rose from the dead on a Sunday and set a new precedent for them? And again, I'm barely scratching the surface in in introducing you to these arguments. If you want to know more, send me a message. I'll send you some good resources on it. But I want you to see there's good evidence for believing the resurrection of Jesus is a literal, historical, true event. And why is it important that the resurrection is true? Because the resurrection of Jesus from the dead is God's ultimate verdict on the things Jesus says about himself here. The human courts, they listened to Jesus. They decided he was breaking God's law by committing blasphemy. They sentenced him to die. They killed him. And the resurrection is God's way of overturning that verdict because God knew Jesus was innocent. He didn't deserve death because the things he said about himself were absolutely true. The resurrection is God's way of saying, these human courts, they think they know the truth about Jesus, but they don't. Even though the human courts declare him guilty, I am declaring him innocent. I am overturning their verdict. I'm setting him free from this penalty that they've given him. The resurrection is the ultimate proof that the things Jesus claims about himself here, the super important question of whether he is really God, are true. It's the proof that he is who he says he is, and that requires us to respond to him with worship and obedience. So church, Jesus believed and taught that he is truly God. It's a vitally important claim because whether or not it's true has huge implications for how we live our lives. And there really are only two ways for us to respond to him. We can trust in him, keep his word, and never taste death. Or along with the crowd from today's passage, we can reject him and judge him worthy of death. But neutrality is not an option once you really understand what he says about who he is. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for being so clear and showing us who Jesus is and what he says about himself. And God, I pray that you would help us to respond properly to him, help us to love him and follow him with our whole hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. If you have any questions about today's sermon, go ahead and type them up and send them in to Colin on Zoom chat. And he will lead us in a Q&A time in just a few seconds.
All right, Colin, do we have any questions? Okay, still waiting. All right, while we're waiting for people to, oh, here we go. Um, while we're waiting for people to send in any questions, I've got one here. Uh, you mentioned that the Bible never says Jesus is God in those exact words, but that there's lots of evidence that he claims to be God in other ways. Outside of this passage, are there other places in the Bible that show that Jesus is God? Yeah, that's a great question. And the answer is definitely. Um, I have a couple that come straight to mind and there are going to be others too. Um, but one would be in Matthew chapter 28, the great commission. Um, Jesus says, go into all the world and make disciples and, um, teach them. Uh, and he tells us to baptize them in the name of the father and the son and the Holy spirit. And what we see right there is, is the word name is singular, which means the father, son, Holy spirit, isn't three names. It's one name in Jesus eyes, which would only be possible if Jesus is actually one God with the father and the Holy spirit. Um, we also see it in Philippians chapter two where Paul says to have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And he talks about how Jesus, even though he was God, he didn't count equality with God, a thing to be grasped. He humbled himself and took the form of man and was born as a servant and humbled himself to the point of death on a cross. And then God exalted him and raised him up and gave him this name above every name. Uh, and he talks about how at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And again, the biblical teaching is that there is one Lord. Um, it's one of the central teachings in the Old Testament in Deuteronomy chapter six. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. So for the Bible to say that Jesus is Lord is saying that he is equal with God. Um, so again, it, it doesn't use that exact word, Jesus is God, uh, but that, that meaning and that sense of it is definitely there. Okay. All right. Thanks for that. Um, 